Hello and welcome to Court Games, a Legend of the Five Rings podcast, funded by the Legend of the Five Rings Discord Patreon. This podcast will focus on the role-playing game stories and lore for Legend of the Five Rings. I'm Korva. And I'm Kakita Kahori. And we have a special guest today. I'd like to introduce Evan Dickin, who is the author of the new book coming out from uh, Asmodi Press to chart the clouds. Hello, Evan. Hello. Hello. How are you both doing today? We're doing great this morning. Doing well? Yeah. Glad to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this this book is coming out uh, Q1 of 2022? That's the plan. Um, yeah. That's the plan. Been, yeah. <laughs> we'll see. As, yeah, as with all things in these turbulent times. I'll believe it when I have it in my, my grubby little hands. But uh, yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> We've really enjoyed the um, Asmodi series. And I've read a preview copy of it. Have you, Kovar? Yep, yep, yep. Wow. But you. our audience <laughs> has it. <laughs> uh, so to begin with, and without giving any spoilers, could you just tell us a little bit about your new book, To Chart the Clouds, and what it is about? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's about a, well, a secret valley uh, that two clans want very much, well, a valley that two clans want very much. I have to start from sort of the beginning. It's about a, um, a court uh, noble, an imperial noble, um, Isami, and uh, she is sort of the uh, one of the uh, a minor court noble and who is uh, hardworking and yet sort of underappreciated in her in her job at the Ministry of Cartography and wants nothing more than to be a uh, an imperial cartographer. And um, but she's a little bit she's been sort of sheltered in her upbringing, so she has a little bit uh, um, a lot to learn. And she sort of runs afoul of uh, various court machinations and clan machinations and finds herself sort of over her head. And it's just about her trying to navigate this and to follow both her her goal, which is to to regain her um, status and to, to find a uh, and to become a court cartographer. And then also to um, sort of fix the mess that she inadvertently causes. Uh, and that's just sort of the without giving any spoilers or anything away. <laughs> no, nope, that's where we don't want spoilers. We want everyone to go and read it. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that book. So let's get a little background on yourself. So um, can you give us a bit of like how you became a writer to begin with? Oh, yeah. Well, um, I how I became a writer, I just have always been as long as I can remember writing little things um, and stuff like that. So I started my partner actually um, got me to start submitting stuff oh, decades ago. And, uh, you know, I sort of struggled in silence for a while, as most writers do, and then finally found my voice and found my place. But uh, I was uh, particularly I write mostly horror and fantasy and uh, some sci-fi, but mostly horror and fantasy. And so I found myself sort of gravitating because I had read all the um, the clan war books back when I was a kid um, and uh, all that sort of stuff. And I played some L5R back in the day. So my um, I started writing for actually Black Library, uh, you know, maybe five years ago, um, just sort of responded to a, a, a beautiful editor there, um, Charlotte Llewellyn Wells, who is now actually with Aconite Press. Um, so she was one of the reasons I came over to L5R, but I've always sort of gravitated towards L5R. Um, I haven't really had the chance to play much of it, although I own all the books of like three different, uh, three different, uh, games of it. I've never played the card game, but mostly the RPG. I've read through all of them a lot. And, um, I think that, you know, I've always been, well, I'm pursuing my PhD in Japanese history. So I've always been sort of geared towards that sort of thing. And, um, 
focused, uh, you know, on, uh, cartography, which is why the, the book itself is, um, you know, about that sort of thing. So it, I thought it was fun and Lottie thought it was a great idea too, to, to sort of work my, my background in. So it was a lot of fun to, to bring in sort of historical elements like that. And, uh, yeah, that's sort of how I've become a writer and I've just sort of plugged away at it. And, you know, it's not, I mean, it'd be great to, if that was my primary, uh, mode of income, but unfortunately I also have a day job so I can just sort of do this in my spare time. So solidly semi-pro writer, I consider myself. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, what are the things you find most appealing about the world for Legend of the Five Rings? Well, I mean, of course, the the sort of um, Sengoku, like late Sengoku, early like um, you know Tokugawa period politics of the of the place. Um, I like the the seven the seven great clans and how the how they're sort of nested levels of uh, interclan politicking, and then also the imperial court above that, and then several other smaller courts. And you know, I think that it especially as it's sort of the um, the setting sort of divested itself of, you know, sort of problematic aspects in earlier editions. I think it's been, it's really sort of come into its own uh, recently, which I really enjoy. Um, and I think they're doing a, they're doing a great job of trying to, you know, make it more accessible to people while also being sort of less, um, you know, I don't, I'm trying to think of the word sort of less um, just, racist a little bit um sort of in previous editions where you know the focus on like seppuku and things like that and i mean it was that those sort of things did of course happen in in japanese history but you know a bunch of white people sitting around a gaming table pretending to be you know samurai talking about honor is just i could see how that could turn off a lot of asian players and uh people that you know that sort of thing so i think that the the new edition itself has done a great job of, of fixing all those sort of um less than uh stellar aspects of the game and i think that it really lets the 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 things i enjoy shine through which is just sort of you know getting to live and to inhabit um you know samurai and nobles and uh, ninja and you know um, ritualists and things like that and it's just it's just fun to play that sort of thing and to to live in that world and i've always been interested in that world um so i guess that is what attracted me to uh, l5r <laughs> so the story features Imperials, because that's obviously our main character, as you said. But there's also the two clans that are interested in this valley. I don't think I'm giving too much weight if I specify that it's the lion and the scorpion. No, uh, I think you can get that from the cover. <laughs> right. <laughs> Do you have a favorite clan or, or clans or another aspect, another group in Edge of the Five Rings? It's your favorite? Absolutely. Yeah, I absolutely love... Um the crane of course there they've always been my sort of, yeah darkly darkly textured political drama has always been my uh, my bag so the crane have always been my favorite um if i could play an arrogant noble uh i will at a, a heartbeat um i would have loved to write a crane novel but you know uh josh reynolds already did such a great job with the doji shin uh stuff that i really you know there's no room for anybody else to do. i mean i couldn't i couldn't beat him so there's no point in doing another crane novel um fair enough and uh, so, yeah, Lottie wanted to to focus on my editor uh, said mentioned sort of that the, that there hadn't really been a scorpion lion sort of thing with multiple clans. So um, and I mean, the scorpion have always been a fun clan. I think that the sort of, um, you know, balance between serving the empire and serving themselves. Um, and I think they're just a little bit more open about it than the other clans and the lion. I really enjoyed um, basically the sort of do as I 
do as I say, not do as I do aspect of them where, I mean, the lion can be just as, um, you know, underhanded as, as anyone else. They just, uh, you know, they've got this sort of veneer of nobility and I mean, they sort of buy into their own hype a bit. Um, well, and, uh, as, as they know. all do really. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's, I think, I think it was just fun to sort of play, um, you know, the lion off of the scorpion, especially, uh, when I try to play against type with characters, um, within the clans themselves. So, so my hope was to give, to write to a lion character who was recognizably lion, but also diff, you know, just sort of different enough that, you know, you could see the person coming through, uh, the, the sort of clan rhetoric and the same with the scorpion, somebody who, um, has sort of bought into the scorpions, you know, me, you know their 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 modus operandi but at the same time wasn't really keen on doing the things that needed to be done um yeah. so it's uh, i think that it was it was fun to sort of play them off each other like that so your books in general have been i've seen the i've seen the horror ones the most in your in your titles um but you definitely didn't go that track with to chart the clouds um it's very much political and adventure but political uh how is that taking this different path what 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 do you do in your writing that that tries to bring that out to the front well um well i don't try to spook the characters that's uh that's like the first uh, no jump scares yeah no jump scares um there are sort of a. Uh, I mean i feel like one of the one of horror strength as a, as a subgenre is or a genre is um characterization so focusing on people and because, I mean, if you don't care about someone, you don't care if they're, you know, terrified. You don't care if they're hurt, uh, you know, that sort of thing. So I think taking that from my horror, uh, or at least whether whether I succeeded or not is up to the readers, <laughs> obviously. But uh, um, trying to give you characters that you worry about when they're put in situations of danger um, and trying to give characters that are more than just one dimensional. And I think that from the horror aspect. And I, I do write a bit of fantasy. Um not so much novels. Uh, unfortunately, I haven't really. Well, actually, I mean, this one, obviously. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so mostly I've been uh, prior to this short fiction. Um, and uh, I have done some fantasy short fiction at like Beneath Ceaseless Skies or um, Heroic Fantasy Quarterly and things like that. But um, and so I've I've sort of enjoyed I, I brought in those sort of sweeping aspects, too. But it's very different writing in a IP than writing in your, you know, your own headspace where you've got a lot of, uh, I mean, I never, I've never, uh, I have with Black Library, but like having a story Bible is a, is a very, still a very new experience to me. Um, things that, and having to pass your ideas through, you know, several layers of, you know, the game designers, your editor, that sort of thing. And, you know, to get them sort of signed off on, um, and, and in, in, you know, Aconite and Lottie's defense, they've been incredibly good about, um, giving me space to sort of stretch my, uh, wings, so to speak, within the setting. And while, while simultaneously sort of reining in my more wild um, imaginings. So I'm, I'm consistently impressed by how good they are at because uh, I've I've had editors before that were more micromanaging and uh, that's just not the case. They're they're incredibly good to work with. So so working for Acolyte in general. Yeah. What, what is that like? Oh, um, wonderful. <laughs> I would say <laughs> um, I kind of I kind of I'm kind of cheating because um Lottie, uh, Charlotte Llewellyn Wells was basically my favorite editor at Black Library. Um, and she and I wrote, um, The Red Hours, which was one of my, I think one of the best things I've ever written. Uh, it was a little novella we did, I think back in 2018. And when she went over to Aconite, um, you know, 
and they were asking for, you know, author submissions, I sort of had a, had a leg up, I think, because I think we both enjoyed working together. And I think she liked what I put down. And I really very much like how she, her editing style and how she works. So, um, and in addition to that, everyone I've, everyone I've crossed paths with at Aconite has been incredibly helpful, incredibly, um, you know, conscientious and, uh, you know, they, they pay on time, which is great. Oh. <laughs> always, a, always a pleasure. And uh, yeah, so they've been very, very professional, very great to work with. Um, I have absolutely zero complaints about Aconite. <laughs> I do find myself wondering, and I don't know whether this is a question you can actually answer or whether it's one we want to put, keep in the, in the, in, in the interview. Uh, but you said uh, they were reining in some of your wilder imaginings. Uh, do you have a wilder imagining? You could share. <laughs> oh, with, uh, with regards to to chart the clouds. Yeah, yeah. If you can, um, it was. Uh, I think the the most back and forth we had, and this is a silly thing. Um, uh, the question was, does does Rokugan have compasses, um, or does it even have a magnetic north? <laughs> well, because yeah, I have to say there is a, there have been questions about what shape is the world of Rokugan. Like, it's never really been defined until very recently when we've discovered there is, there are hemispheres and Rokugan is in the north one. So, yeah, it's a genuine question. Is there a magnetic north? Do magnets work? Are there magnets? Exactly. So I was, uh, we sort of, we sort of uh, uh, sidestepped, and I don't think I'm giving any away by sort of creating sort of a geomantic compass where it always points towards the um, emperor's palace or where you know where the emperor's seat of power is or otosan uchi or you know that sort of thing so i think that was a and, and that was partially my idea and partially lottie's and we just sort of like worked it out and um katrina ostrander over at um fantasy flight was also a big help with that sort of thing because she is just the you know just a, a a sage of rokugani lore so she's always she's always good to, to ask questions and to help that sort of thing <laughs> is there anything you're nervous about when you're thinking about when this story is going to be released. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a bag of nerves. I'm like every author, you know, <laughs> I, I'm constantly worrying. I mean, I'm, I'm worried that it won't, it won't sell. But, you know, besides that, uh, I think my, my biggest worry is that I got something wrong um, with regards to lore or because there's just so much of it. Um, and I have, I mean, I've read through the books, you know, several times in my life, uh, various editions. And that's, I think, the problem is that the, the backstories uh, change and they're sort of fluid. Um, and I mean, you'll have that with an RPG based on a card game. So, <laughs> and and different emphases in different games, in different editions, and a lot, I mean, the law as opposed. I mean, there's the background, and then there's the stuff that happened, which are kind of separate, and it could be difficult to tweeze out sometimes. Yeah, yeah. So I'm worried that I will have messed something up. Uh, and that, you know, some eagle eyed reader will be like, um, actually that didn't, that didn't, <laughs> that didn't happen. Even, yeah. Didn't yeah. happen quite that way. Or, you know, and I, and I, you know, we passed through several rounds of, uh, you know, lore readings just to make sure that, that, that didn't happen. But, you know, I can always mess stuff up. It, it sounds like it, it's almost more like historical fiction. You know, it's, it's like, I remember there's, there's one, uh, novel series and they got a bit castigated because they had a character go into Edo Castle. But they said, no, 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 the main tower of Edo Castle burnt down the year before. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. It, and you kind of get stuff like that with Rock again. I'm, I'm sorry that character wasn't in Otosanuchi on that year. They're off, you know, doing this other thing. 
as as described by this by the flavor text of this card. It's like, uh. <laughs> well, I'm I'm the person who keeps all of those notes, so I didn't find anything. So there you go. <laughs> Your next PhD clearly needs to be Rokugani history. Well, if I could, I would. <laughs> <laughs> Game studies or something I do. Yeah, I really enjoyed the book, so it, mm, it was very much so. So. Well, that 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 means that means an awful lot to hear. I mean, it's still incredibly surreal that you know I grew up reading these books, and then now I'm writing one, and I just, I, I, I for the longest time I thought they were catfishing me. Like, who who would want me to write you know this sort of thing, especially for Black Library or for Aconite now? Like, it just it doesn't seem. Like I keep waiting for the other shoe to drop, but it hasn't yet. So you know. I, I mean, I, I don't know if I quite want to put it this way, but it's kind of like the line between I'm an enthusiastic fan writing fan fiction, and now I'm actually writing the thing. <laughs> that must be surreal. Very, very much. Um, I, I, like I said, you know, I still can't believe that this is. You know, I get to go home and, you know, for research read through an RPG book like that's I'm used to reading through some like dry historical you know uh, piece and here I get to go read about you know the Kalad or I get to read about you know the crane or the uh, the scorpion and I just get to dig into their backstory and that's that's research for me now like it's it's something I get yeah it's it's great and before it was just for fun I mean it's still for fun I still enjoy every moment of it but uh yeah and I, I am a researcher by trade, so it's really, it's really delightful for me to sort of dig into the, the nuts and bolts and to sort of compare editions and figure out, you know, where everything lies. And I think the new, um, the new edition also does a good job of keeping everything vague enough that you can sort of build your own story in. I mean, especially with To Chart the Clouds, I tried to keep everything, um, you know, copacetic while simultaneously making room for, for changes. I think that bumping up against the you know because we're sort of set in this nebulous timeline before the scorpion coup and um we didn't want to give away too much because you know they've got you know they've got a lot in the works and i can't you know really speak to that so i wanted to keep sort of something you know this is all happening off camera and you know it plays into the larger political machinations that are going on within you know rokugani uh court but at the same time it isn't part of them right um so the people we're dealing with are, you know, several levels down from the the big movers and shakers in the setting, which is how I kept everything safe. <laughs> mm, and, and also geographically, there's a certain amount of, well, it's clearly happening somewhere on this line because you know which clans are involved. But exactly where is not super, yeah, you could you could set things there, you could set things slightly left, left to the right or the right of it. And yeah, that was one of the, that was one of the funny things is they wanted to, I mean, I think they're going to put a map in the in the beginning because they've been really good. They have these beautiful maps that they put in. Um, and being a map nerd, you know, this is something that I, I was I was specifically I don't know if I had enough juice to ask for, but I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm so excited. They put a map in. But they were asking, like, OK, where does this take place? And I'm like, well, here are like six places like I circled on the map where it could take place. Like, I don't know where this actually fits in. Um, but, you know, Rokugan. And that's another question I had is like, you know, does Rokugan have Magnetic North, but how big is Rokugan? Like, you know, they, they have finally n nailed that in this, they've, they've given some numbers. Yeah. It's uh 600 by 900. Yeah. I, I got, I got map nerdy on it. <laughs> so yeah, it, it, it's, it's approximately, it's not quite 
if you imagine the uh, the you know, the upper upper leg of Japan, it's not quite the bounding box of that, but it's very close. That is incredibly good to know. Thank you very much because I'm getting out my notepad right now. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's in the very beginning of the first book. They say that that okay. it's 600 miles wide by 900 miles north. So. And I'm pretty sure that's been confirmed. At least one other. I'm pretty sure a character somewhere in one of the fictions has well, confirmed. Well, thank you so much for that, Atlas. This is very helpful because a lot of the troubles I'm running into is uh, the editor would be like, well, how long does it take him to get there? And I'd be like, well, I have no idea how long because I don't know how big the place is. Speed of plot. I'll send you a link after the after the podcast. Oh, you'll, thank you'll you. You'll appreciate that. Yeah. That measures that. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think that like... One of the one of the troublesome things is the the map shifts from edition to edition. Things oh, aren't yes. always in the same place. Yeah. Oh, and and it's not quite the same size. It's not quite the same shape. All sorts and of weirdness. And that's actually kind of funny because I mean, um, from the context of you know mapping in non-Western cultures, like maps do shift, and even in Western cultures. But you know, um, you, Japanese maps they they're producing scientific cartography about the same time we are but you know back in the sengoku period you know a, a provincial map is going to look like n not the same provincial map as somebody else's map you know just because you're drawing it without you know rule or line so it makes sense that this sort of yeah it, it, and it's not even that it's it's what why are they making this map what is the map meant to convey mm-hmm mm -hmm. And I, I think a lot of people expect we, we, in like in the modern day, we are expecting like a one to one, you know, exact, precise down, you know, like satellite view. That's what we used to do in a map. But if you look at like, um, well, there are all sorts of different ways of doing maps. Like I'm the London Underground is the one. And I think most metro systems, most they're not they're not exact. It's it's topological. I need what you need to know is I get on this station, get off of this station, and that's what they needed. I get on this road, and I I don't go left, I go go right. Now I go left, go over this bridge, and that's what they needed. And they didn't need this kind of exact. You know, you could you could put a, a ruler on and say, okay, I'm going to be going exactly forty seven point two miles. And so these maps look different, but they still worked. And it wasn't, you know, I, I'd find all that fascinating. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I obviously do too. I'm doing my doctorate in it but yeah and i mean the a lot of and one of the the um sort of genesis of the geomantic compass was that a lot of japanese maps at least at least from the period um the pre-modern period uh, east is actually at the top rather than we're, we're used to sitting north at the top situating but yeah they uh because it's pointing towards the kyoto yeah it's it's, it's fascinating how confusing that is <laughs> and it's like we're so used to north and, when, and as soon as it's wait wait hang on <laughs> East is that? What is going on here? <laughs> and also, the um, we're used to seeing all the text situated so you can read it from the bottom, you know, from the map. But you know, the Japanese maps were meant to be laying on a floor, and you walk around it, so all the text is facing each corner. So as you walk around the map, you can see, you know, all the text on your side of the map is facing towards you. Um, so it's fascinating stuff like that. But I didn't want to get too much in the weeds. Uh, that was one of the. <laughs> One of the with with the novel, of course, because you know nobody really used to know that sort of that that level of uh, silliness. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, how how long did this book actually take to write? Like, when did you start working on it? Oh my gosh, I was on a very tight timeline. I think I've got my writing thing. Let me bring it up here. So I started. Um, it took me about. See, I started on March thirty first, twenty twenty one, and I ended on. Um, 
June 24th, 2021. So about a little less than three months, which was being, you know, the first novel I've sat down and, you know, written beginning to end. Uh, it was, it was quite a, quite a, quite a jog. It was, it was a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that's impressive. <laughs> I still can't believe I managed it. So did you have any specific Legend of the Five Rings inspirations for this particular novel? Um, well, I think my favorite of the clan war, the old clan war novels, the Scorpion novel, um, I think was, was a lot of, um, I think it's still, I don't want to say it's the best, but it's definitely my favorite of the old clan war novels. And, um, of course, like taking, uh, inspiration, I guess, from, from history with, uh, regards to, you know, sort of Japanese court society and the Heian period and also, you know, traveling up through the, um, cause Rokugan's had a, a very interesting like intersection where you've got a strong court mm. and also strong clans, which didn't really happen um, in history. So it's, it's fun to sort of, you know, dig into what that means where, you know, the emperor is still in charge wherein, you know, historically speaking, when the emperor was in charge, the, there were no samurai. And then when there were samurai, the emperor wasn't in charge. Right. Yeah. I mean, there was, a, there was a, a, a changeover and there's also a period in the late, Heian, which where there was the northern Fujiwara, who were almost a completely separate nation, sort of ish. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that, that it is. It's not really a thing that occurs, and so yeah, that does make Rokugan kind of interesting sometimes. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 very fun to see to figure you know to sort of think of how that would work, where you know you've got this imperial line and you've got these imperial families. You know, the Otomo and the Mia and uh, Seppun and things like that. And you've got these clans that are sort of working around. And so, like, half the court positions are imperial and half the court are, like, you know, doji and, you know, bayushi and things like that. And you've got this uh, increasingly strong scorpion um, contingent that are getting more power in court. So it's fun to see sort of how that trickles down with regards to how, you know, people on the ground and, you know, samurai and, you know, clan nobles are interacting. And that was a that was interesting because I think that one of the f most fun um, sort of class uh, um, things to play with was the fact that the main character, uh, Isami, is um, she's a Mia, which is like one of the smallest, you know, uh, imperial families. But technically, she outranks everybody she talks to, even though in, pr in practice, she's there basically by herself and they have you know, small armies with them. So it's, it's fun to sort of sort of tease at that tension between, you know, technically you're my social superior, but in reality, you know, if I wanted to disappear you, I could. Yeah. And, and there would no be, there'd be almost no questions because you're sort of on the outs. Mm. As, yeah. It's, it's one of the things. So long as, so long as no one ever finds out, <laughs> but if anyone does, so there's some calculation going on. Yeah. Hey. And I think that that uh, yeah, that realization for her was a fun a fun one to write. You do have three pretty unique and interesting protagonists in this story, uh, in particular Mia Sami. How would you describe her personality? Hmm. Well, I think it. Hope, I mean, hopefully, it changes over the course of the novel <laughs> uh, because you know she begins as sort of an ingenue where she's not innocent per se, but um, you know she believes what everybody has told her with regards to you know work hard, you know, keep your chin up, you'll get ahead sort of thing. And uh, she's led sort of a she's had sort of a sheltered upbringing with regards to, you know, just how she 
interacts with the world being both a noble, uh, you know, an imperial noble and uh, being just sort of part of this, you know, bureaucracy. And when, you know, the rubber meets the road, so to speak, when she actually starts to get involved in politicking, she finds herself very overmatched. Um, but I think that from a person, you know, she, she, her strengths are that she's good at her job and, uh, you know, that she, she wants the best for everybody. And I feel like um, she tries to do the right thing. And I hopefully that, you know, it's, she's not a one dimensional character. And so that messes her plans up as much as it helps her. Uh, and, um, so I think that she begins the novel sort of trying to find her foot footing in this, uh, sort of, you know, the, amidst the vicissitudes of, of court politics and then, and clan politics and almost getting killed several times. And then through that becomes somebody who's able to, at the end, um, know her place. And I don't mean that in a, you know, pejorative, I mean, she knows what she wants and how to get it. And um, she's able to sort of throw shade with the best of them by the end of the, the novel. So she really comes into her own. At least I hope so. I hope that comes through. Okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> so of the two clans that you do, other than the Imperials, we also see the Lion Clan. So what is your sense of the Lion Clan and what do you feel is unique about them? I feel like, um, I mean, obviously they're the, they consider themselves the most martial clan. And I think that, that um, I feel like for me, at least the lion clan have always been super fun because they're these, these sort of people who, you know, we're the, we're the Imperial army. You know, we build up, we make up most of the fighting force of Rokugan. We're big enough that we could, you know, if we marched on any other clan in earnest, we could probably crush them. Um, you know, excepting maybe the unicorn, I suppose. Um, but uh, uh, it's just, it's it's fun to see sort of the 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 tension between you know the the warrior tales that they're sort of raised on and then how actually they go about their business uh, when they're fighting and I think that you know there's been this sort of uh, focus on Akodo's code and that sort of and that sort of thing but I mean if you're even if you're using like the Legend of the Five or the um sorry the the five uh, five rings or you know the um Sun Tzu you're like you know that that's it's good it's a good it's good in practice, but in, in, in theory, I mean, it's good in theory, but in practice, like, you know, you can't possibly summarize a bunch of, you know, maxims and then apply them to the battlefield with absolute, you know, certainty. So I think that, that when the lion get out into the world, I think them, they, I've, I sort of, I sort of touched on, uh, the main character, Mia Sami's innocence, uh, but also, the lion getting out in the world and realizing that not everybody is, you know, not everybody keeps their word. Not everybody, um, you know, sort of follows a code. And if they do follow a code, it may be very different than yours. And, uh, Oh no, you're in a situation where, you know, there might not be a, a, a there might not be a saying for this. They're not, you know, a Kodo didn't talk about, you know, how we're going to interact with, you know, a scorpion who may not be a good faith actor, um, in this, in this negotiation sort of thing. So, uh, trying to apply that and, you know, I think all the the minor characters, the, the both the scorpion and the and the lion, were sheltered sort of in their own way. And I think that the they're the, them all coming out of their shell uh, together, and uh, sort of painfully in a lot of places, uh, really really sort of puts it forward. And um, I think, at least regards to the lion character um, Shinzo, uh, he had this sort of idea that he would you know, the same as sort of Isami where he'd work hard and he did a good job and, 
you know, he would be able to, he would get a, a advantageous marriage and he would be able to rise up through the clan through service. And I think that, you know, in the, in the working world, you're sort of told this thing as well, like work hard and you'll, you'll rise. But in reality, like that's not really how it happens. Uh, you've got to know people, you've got to, you know, take advantage of opportunity when it arises and that sort of thing. And that not necessarily in a, in an upright fashion. Um, so I think that, that with regards to the lion, like this, this, um, tension between what they believe and how they act, uh, is probably the most interesting thing for me. Um, and you can justify a lot of stuff under, you know, the code. I mean, we see it every day with, uh, you know, the biblical sayings and things like that, where people will twist, you know, there's, there's enough written that you can twist it to however you want to believe, um, to justify however, whatever you want to do with, I mean, the, the, you know, the crusades and whatnot, you know, deus vault sort of stuff. But, right. Uh, uh, and more, all things are, are honorable. Uh, yeah. Winning, winning is honorable, but yeah. So in that in that same sense, uh, what is what is really unique and interesting about the scorpion for you? Oh well, again, um, it's it's sort of this uh, this tension between um, the fact that their their sort of motto, their sort of you know the the scorpion stinging the frog and whatnot, um, they they see themselves as is in a lot of ways more upright than a lot of other clans because they're willing to accept the fact that they do wrong in service of the empire. And again, there's a lot of room in that belief for someone who genuinely does think that, you know, I'm killing this court noble because, you know, I'm doing this assassination because this guy was acting out of his, his, uh, out of place. And, uh, he was, he would have caused a lot more problems. So by murdering him, you know, something, you know, poisoning him, you know, I'm doing something fundamentally good for the empire. But again, who's to say, uh, you know, that's, they're not, it's not like if the emperor is sanctioning this assassination. It's not like, you know, Hante himself is signing a paper that, you know, gives you authority to do this sort of thing. Um, so I think that like the, the fact that, that in doing so in, um, placing them then saying, you know, anything I do is in service to the empire, emperor, empire, no matter how underhanded, um, you know, I think I'm doing the right thing in putting themselves in that position. They've sort of circumvented, you know, the Hantes themselves and, you know, and I think you see that come into full force, you know, with the Scorpion coup um, in previous editions. And I don't, I don't really know exactly how it'll play out this time around. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it'll be fun, fun to explore again because again, that's my favorite. Uh, like I said, political drama is my is my bag. So, um, and the Scorpion are right, Scorpion are right in the thick of it. So, and I enjoy seeing them sort of as a balance to the Crane too, where the Crane are just, you know, the Crane are just as underhanded as the Scorpion. Uh, they just go about it in a different way. Um, so, yeah. They're, they're underhand in an overhand kind of way. Yeah. I mean, whereas the scorpion will, you know, sneak into your bedroom and slip some, you know, drip some poison into your mouth while you sleep. The crane will ruin your social, you know, and get you exiled or, you know, your social standing, get you exiled to some monastery in a mountain somewhere. And uh, you're just as dead. You just uh, get to get to wallow in it, I guess. <laughs> we also get to spend some time with the imperial bureaucracy, which I honestly don't think we have much in the past we haven't which was no so I, I i that was an interesting place to be so what inspired your take on the imperial the, the imperial families and how they react to each other um well i mean i read everything i could find on them which again wasn't a lot um as you mentioned before so i sort of drew on uh, what I knew of Japanese courts, the Japanese court system, and especially during the, like the Tokugawa period where the courts are, you know, 
technically in charge. You know, everybody says, you know, we do this for the emperor. We do this for, you know, such and such noble. And the nobles are still issuing edicts and things like that. But in, in reality, the shogun's in charge. Um, and uh, so it's fun. And uh, I guess even the Bakumatsu period towards the end where, you know, you've got these Satsuma and Choshu rebels who are fighting against the, the, to the shogun, but they're doing it on behalf of the emperor. So I think that that that's sort of where I took my my marching order, so to speak, with regards to the imperial bureaucracy, where you've got this, you've got these imperial houses, which are in charge, they do actually run things. Uh, but at the same time, they don't have the reach to administer every, every square hectare of Rokugan. Um, so they've got to they've got to sort of um, defer to the clans to, to manage these places. And I think that um, having a bureaucracy where, you know, you have uh, half to three quarters of it are imperial, but also there's a, a small, uh, you know, a relatively sizable contingent of clan nobles who also have, you know, court rank and whatnot, and they may have more actual practical power than the than the uh, bureaucrats. Whereas, you know, I'm such and such minister of such and such bureau, but in reality, I have to anytime I want to get anything done, I have to wrangle with the clans to do it. Um, because they're the ones with most of the warriors, they're the ones with most of the you know bureaucrats, they're the ones with most of the peasants. So it's just uh, it's it was a fun sort of it was fun to sort of dig into that and to see how they react to that. Where you know they have to they shouldn't, but they do have to defer to the clans in a lot of aspects um, just to get things done. I like that take. So you kind of mentioned it before, but should readers consider this this story? like canon, something that officially happened part of the history of the world, at least for FFG, or the, this, uh, I guess it's Asmodee, uh, and, or Edge now, or is it mostly standalone? Uh, and could have happened or maybe not happened? I'd like to say it, I'd like to say it's canon, but you know, I, I'm not, I don't think the call is mine to make. Um, I feel like I've, I've kept it um, distant enough from the main storylines that you know, it could be, it could easily have happened, um, especially because it doesn't, I mean, it does, it does play into sort of rising scorpion power and, you know, tensions between the clans and tensions between the court and the clans and, you know, the, the sort of growing weakness of the Hante. Um, so I think that, you know, I'd like it to have happened, but again, that's not really uh, my call to make. <laughs> Fair enough. That's true. I, I kind of feel that the novels that have been coming out, uh, they're sort of like, if you think about it, people's role-playing campaigns. The whole point of, of a role-playing game setting, unlike something like Lord of the Rings, where the setting exists really for one story, the whole point of Legend of Five Rings is you can tell loads of different stories in loads of different places, and they can all fit in there somewhere, as long as they don't, you know, break too much. I think the novels feel fill that kind of gap as well. You know, there's, there's, there are different stories, but they can all take place because Rock Gun's quite big and there's room for them. I think that's, yeah, that's, I think that's one of the beauties of the setting. I mean, it, it's sort of, it's a living setting. Um, and it's still, it, I know it was, it, it's changed through the cart, through, you know, card game and clan politics and, you know, who won various tournaments. Um, so what you get is a kind of, I don't want to say a kitchen sink setting, but a setting that, that changes quite rapidly. Um, and has a lot of room for you know exposition in various places because so many there's so many interesting times in the history I think yeah so yeah speaking of history I mean you kind of touched on when this may have taken place but you could you 
when when do you see this as taking place? Well, I see it as I, I know that the um, the the RPG right now is sort of in that sort in sort of like a nebulous time prior to the Scorpion coup. Um, and I mean, again, I don't know how that will take place in this particular iteration of the the game. So I'd like to say it's you know in the in the years in the decade or two leading up to you know this 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 coup, whatever form it takes, I think is where I would have put the I put the novel. Yeah, that's yeah. I have to say when I, I tend to run. Those, those two times I get to run El Favar, it's always kind of nebulously right before that, because everyone, that's what the setting kind of describes in the books. And so you can kind of, if you want to go that way, you can, but you can also just keep playing and indeed telling stories in that kind of nebulous, it hasn't quite happened yet, but it might do in the future, maybe, you know. Yeah, I think that's a fun time because there's, I mean, everybody's sort of gearing up for something right and uh everything's just on the verge of falling apart and oh gosh uh you know i, I feel like i just made myself sad thinking about you know general world politics but uh you know i wouldn't want to live i like writing about interesting times but i do not like living in them so, <laughs> <laughs> well so can we expect any further adventures from of Mia Asami or or and Co or any other L5R stories from you? Well, I am um I can answer those all in, in various ways. I, I would I haven't been asked to write any more uh Isami stories, but you know, it hasn't the book hasn't come out yet, so I think it's a little premature for me to say I'm I left the the ending without giving anything away a little bit open, um, where it could, it could act as a standalone, but also there's room for, for more if, you know, if it sells well and if, you know, people really take to it. Um, but at the same time, you know, I'm happy just, you know, leaving it as it is, you know, it, because it's just, I, I, I'm happy with where it ended up. Um, and I think that the reader, hopefully at the end of the story can imagine what happens after and, you know, what role Isami takes and, you know, with regards to, you know, what she wants and what she gets. Um, and I can say I am working on, um, another novel, which I'm not really at liberty to talk about at the moment. So, uh, so there will be fingers crossed, you know, unless something goes horribly wrong in the process. Um, I will, I will be writing something else, uh, L5R, at least one more. Good. Now you've mentioned that, you know, you know, this, you've written some other things out there. So for those who, well, those of us who are, for those of us, those people, listeners in the future who have managed to read the book and have come back to the podcast, or anyone who just wants to get a feel for your writing, um, what what of your works would you recommend? Where where should they go? Oh, geez. Um, well, I guess since this is a fantasy novel, I would send them to um, uh, probably Beneath Ceaseless Skies or Heroic Fantasy Quarterly. I have uh, several novelette. No, well, they're long stories, maybe novelettes, so around ten thousand words. Um, just on both of those uh, sites, and they're both second world fantasy sites. And I don't think neither of them are really. Um, well, actually, I have written a couple uh, historical fantasies for um, Cohesion Press uh, out of Australia. Um, they do sort of a military sci-fi uh, fantasy sort of thing. So I have a couple a couple stories in their anthologies, which are um, Japanese history, uh, basically during the late Sengoku period with magic and demons and stuff. Um, so I'd maybe direct you there. All right. Okay. Well, sounds wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on our show and talking about uh, about your book to chart the cl clouds again coming out uh, Q1 of 2022. If all is on track. 
We really appreciate you coming. Oh, well, I, it's been a pleasure speaking with both of you. I've, you know, I really enjoy this. Sorry if I babbled on a little too much. Oh, no, no, no that's, 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 that's great. <laughs> that's what you're here for. <laughs> Evan, where can people find you if they want to seek you out on the interwebs? Well, I have a, I do have a website. It is a, a bit old and uh, dusty, but it's a www.evandicken.com. Um, I have, I can do occasion. I update the, uh, the uh, published list. So if you go to my work, I've got my Black Library page. I've got my um, sort of free page. And I guess I'll have to add a uh, Aconite L5R page too as well now. Um, so I've made Absolutely. more work myself. <laughs> well, that's great. Thank you. We wanted to give a call out to Fortune and Strife, which is our affiliated actual play podcast, as well as our friends at D20 Radio. And also we have a shout out to our patrons. We wanted to give a shout out to uh, Mackie, no, uh, sorry, to Maddie, Maddie this week, uh, for being our patron and also for... Uh, uh, John or uh, Ayuchi Noria, um, also called Nomadic. Thank you for being our Patreon and supporting us as we uh, try doing this this podcast. Yep, our content is funded by the Community Discord Patreon, and so it supports our editing costs as well as our website courtgamespod.com where you can see and store long-term information we've got forums we've got summaries of podcasts rpg tools and lots more and for our patrons we've got special bonus content things like adventure seeds and early access to our actual play podcasts and and more online you can find us at our website as state courtgamespod.com you can also find us on twitter at twitter.com slash courtgamespod and finally, our Patreon, if you would love to support us, you can find us at patreon.com slash games. This is uh, Kikita Kaori. May the fortunes favor you. And I have been Korva, and until we meet again, keep your jade handy.